Hi, this is Peter Kaiser, Editor-in-Chief of Retinal Physician. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Retinal Physician podcast series. Today, we are joined by Dr. Rishi Singh of the Cole Eye Institute, who's also Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. Welcome, Rishi. Thanks for having me, Peter. So as a leader in clinical research, I think one of our listeners would want to hear about are sort of what are some of the new therapies currently in clinical trials for age-related macular degeneration, and what are some of the advantages they have over our current medications? Yeah, Peter, when you look at this as a kind of a landscape, you think of how we're going to do this. Is it to build a better anti-VEGF molecule? You know, the molecules we have right now are, are pretty effective what they do. Um, are we going to be able to place it in some sort of uh, sustained delivery device or apparatus to help us deliver the drug better? Or are we going to really go after a new mechanism of action? And that one is, I think, uh, intriguing amongst uh, the many others because we really have had targeted VEGFA for so many years now. It's been almost the 15th year anniversary, I believe, now of, of VEGFA inhibition for neovascular AMD. And there's so much more we could do with this. But these are the kind of three strategies most people are kind of addressing or taking to look at this in the future. So of those uh, strategies, what do you think has the best chance of making it? A new pathway or, or just improving durability of what we already have? Yeah, I think the durability effect is probably the one that has the best pathway. There's some already pr uh, data from both phase two and phase three studies right now where we've really seen some promising data with regards to sustained delivery. Um, in that realm, there's the port delivery system, which has really shown a, a lot of promise in this area. Um, you know, you're aware the port delivery system has been, uh, you know, tested in now phase two and finally in phase three studies and shows a very, uh, very, very good safety profile. But the, the biggest issue, I think, is the refillable rate here, where, you know, 80% of patients in the highest group actually were refilled at, um, at beyond the six-month period. And that, that, to me, has been, I think, a driving uh, piece of information, which I think is helpful, especially if you think of in light of where we are right now and patients not coming in. If we see another spike in in this pandemic and, and this time period, patients not coming in for a certain period of time, uh, that's attractive, albeit that they have to undergo a surgical procedure to to have this done. Um, that's the, the low-hanging fruit, I think, if you look at port delivery system and what it can achieve. Um, the higher bar is really the other drugs you're talking about, the new MOAs. Uh, because as you're aware, you know, if you want to go to the FDA and you've sat in front of the FDA way more than anyone else has, that, you know, you have to be able to show a lot of times superiority in this. They don't accept endpoints like less injections or less fibrosis or um, better re reductions in retinal thickness. They're going to look strictly at visual acuity. And so uh, I don't know if that's achievable with the bar we've achieved with currently VEGFA inhibitors especially given frequently monthly or every month to be able to show a superiority effect in those sort of drugs potentially. So looking in your crystal ball, we have several different pathways uh, beyond VEGF that are being looked at. If you were a betting man, what pathway do you think is, is currently furthest in the lead? Yeah, I, I think right now Farsenab and the NH2 pathway is probably the lead compound we're going to see in our hands shortly. Uh, as you're aware, this is kind of a unique protein in the sense it is a fusion protein of VEGF-A inhibition and ANG2 inhibition. And, you know, I, I, the preclinical data for, for ANG2 is pretty compelling to show that ANG2 is involved in more of the ischemic retinopathies 
Um, it is involved in neovascular AMD, not to the greatest extent, but enough that you can tell that it is slightly higher than what we'd expect to see, so for example, in our control populations. But really in the diabetic retinopathy and the retinal vein occlusion populations, that's a really high signal, especially in the preclinical models. And thus far, the data has been pretty compelling. Um, if you look at both Avenue and the uh, stairway studies, you know, Avenue looked at the three different doses and found equivalence in the, the, the dosages studied of farsenab. But the stairway trial was, I think, even more interesting because in that one, you could finally see that given every 12 weeks, every 16 weeks, and, and up to that time period, you see an equivalence uh, with regards to visual acuity. And so this idea that we might be able to personalize treatment, which is what we're doing in the phase three, um, as one of the study committee members in phase three of Farsenab, I can tell you we're really excited to potentially deliver what we consider a real algorithm that we could all use in clinical practice, which is the PTI algorithm we developed to help us better decide if your patient should be every four weeks, every eight weeks, up to every 16 or even 20 weeks potentially in this study. That would be amazing. How about some of the newer gene therapy studies? You know, we're, we're starting to hear about the ability to have maybe anti-VEGF protein delivered for the rest of a patient's life. Uh, what do you think about those? And, and, and are there worries that you have about using gene therapy and macular degeneration? Yeah, I think in macular degeneration, it, it makes a lot of sense for gene therapy to be a, a pathway for this. You know, obviously, these are longer disease states, we treat these for uh, the length of the time the patient is alive. And many of our patients are living longer than ever. So going out six, seven, eight years, the data looks really poor in these patients by inhibiting a single pathway with interrupted treatments, as we call them right now. Interrupted meaning that we intermittently give them a VEGFA inhibitor. Uh, we think we're doing the best job we can, but it's really not sustainable and it's not sustained uh, drug delivery in those patients. So if we potentially could be better about delivering this in a more of a regulated fashion as gene therapy has the promise of doing, would patients' long-term outcomes be better as a result of it? That's the, really the promise in gene therapy. And the answer is probably yes. I, I think we all sort of underdose still despite our, our best efforts. Um, these patients are complicated when they're older and so we can't necessarily treat them all the time. One of the benefits of, that, of, of gene therapy tends to be this um, delivery effect that uh, potentially could be uh, in the operating room, but also potentially in the office. The only issue with the office-based delivery thus far has been, and this is in the Adverum data, is really around the inf intraocular inflammation, which exists uh, with the product. Subretinally, there doesn't appear to be as much inflammation, so that might be the method of delivery. And maybe there's a way of delivering it subretinally through some of the newer technologies we have of needle delivery in the subtenon space or the sub-retinal uh, space through the office-based technologies that might be a, a better effect than we have right now. Uh, it's a promise uh, for those conditions. For uh, the, the peril in that is the price of these drugs. Um, as as uh, ophthalmologists go, we're on the, we have three of the top 10 drugs right now on the uh, Medicare Part B list for drug costs. Uh, that's certainly a level of of uh, notoriety and scrutiny we don't want to have because we're treating less than 10% of the U.S. population with these drugs, yet we're really high on that list. And so the question becomes in gene therapy, I think, in a lot of these cases is what's the cost of this at the end of the day? If your cost is astronomically high and uh, you know you have that additional cost on top of whatever we're paying for, uh, for other you know, anti-VEGFs up into that point where you'd actually deliver the gene therapy, 
this could be a really, really high cost uh, of medication for potentially, uh, albeit um, some uh, slight benefit over what we have right now. So I, I think the pricing really matters when it comes to this more than anything else. The efficacy is definitely there. We can see the efficacy outcomes. We're impressed that there's few, so few injections. We can you know, develop maybe quality models that look at improved quality of life and care because of not getting injections all the time. But I'm concerned about the issue about long-term drug delivery and, and, and the cost of that delivery potentially in those patients. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And moving from the high cost to maybe low cost, uh, you know, this year, this summer, uh, ranibizumab went off patent in the United States. And so uh, several companies now have uh, biosimilars to ranibizumab in front of the U.S. FDA. We may see those very shortly. I know a Flibercept biosimilars are starting clinical studies now, even though the, the patent doesn't run out for that either 2023 or maybe even a little later, depending on what Regeneron does with the pediatric market. But where do you think the role would be for biosimilars? And are biosimilars really generics? Can we just simply substitute them or not? Yeah, so it's interesting you bring that up. Uh, you know, biosimilars could be the pathway for finally regulated Avastin. Uh, obviously, we're using it off-label right now, and it's, it's, uh, it's done by compounding pharmacies, which allow us to get it cheaply. Uh, potentially, the issue with that is that we don't know the variability in the outcome of what we get. There's been some really great studies out there that have shown some really variable quality effects in this, this Avastin's being compounded. So we might have some better Avastin that comes out of these things, but certainly our, our, our insurance companies are smarter than we are. And uh, they're going to look at this as step therapy, potentially. And they're going to probably relegate that we use a lot of these uh, other medications in the absence, especially neovascular AMD as a true winner, um, the, or a true efficacy winner, uh, that we're gonna end up using these drugs uh, as first-line therapy potentially in those patients. Now, what that means is that potentially, you know, Avastin, uh, and I'd love to hear your comment on that, thought on this too, is that if, if you have a, a biologically proved Avastin, do you get to still compound things in the U.S.? I think the answer is probably going to be yes, um, because I think that compounding is here to stay for a lot of other drugs and outside of ophthalmology. But in, in um, ophthalmology, we might be relegated to using some of these biologics as first-line therapy. Um, the concern I have about that is that um, we're seeing data right now that's really poor. Uh, the data recently from, from Outlook uh, showed a really poor three-line visual acuity gain in those patients treated with Avastin. Um, I was actually quite unimpressed with the drug when I heard about those results, and it, it concerns me when you think about that, because in light of what we've seen from the randomized clinical studies, those have been far, far more efficacious. So I, I don't know about your thoughts about it, but my concern is that if we get a lower-priced drug that's a little bit less efficacious, we might be relegated to using that as first-line therapy. Yeah, I agree. I think in particular for Lucentis and and. ILEA, you know, as long as the drug shows non-inferiority in, in a similar dosing scheme, which is what they'll, the bar they're uh, against for a biosimilar, the Outlook Therapeutics is a little different, right? They're, they're actually trying to get a drug approved. Uh, they're using a very um, under-treatment, I would call it, in the, in the control arm. Um, and so, so there are some questions, and, and whether we will be required to use that and not be allowed to compound uh, Avastin anymore in the future is, is a question we'll all be facing shortly. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Singh. This has been a really enlightening podcast. I thank all our listeners for tuning in and hope you'll join us at a future Rental Physician podcast series. Thank you.